<laughs> or better yet, what he doesn't do, I guess. I, here's the, you know, I guess here's the the, the Cliff's Notes version of it all. Uh, currently, uh, I've been the uh, uh, radio play-by-play voice of Providence uh, going on 30 years. Uh, I also have worked for the uh, the Patriots, the New England Patriots, for the past 25 seasons as their stadium voice. Um, I've been uh, a columnist for a couple of websites now for the better part of eight to ten years, Patriots.com, WEEI.com. Uh, I still fill in, although it's a rare instance on talk shows on the WEEI network, uh, you know, throughout New England. Uh, but I really limit those now uh, largely because I, three years ago, began a uh, full-time uh, teaching position at Dean College in uh, Franklin, Massachusetts, Dean is a very small, uh, typical New England liberal, liberal arts school. Uh, has only about eleven, twelve hundred students, but they were had been interested in beefing up their communications program. And I had spent the previous ten years before coming to Dean uh, as an adjunct professor at Emerson uh, College in Boston, which is a uh, nationally noted uh, communications college, turning out a lot of great grads and uh, in both the arts and in uh, uh, reporting and journalism. And so um, knowing that they were starting a a full-time four-year communications degree program here at Dean, uh, and because of the relationship that I have uh, with the Patriots, uh, they developed uh, something here at Dean called the Center for Business, Entertainment, and Sport Management. I come in and basically run that center, and it's an academic partnership between uh, Dean and the New England Patriots, the Revolution, and several other teams and sports entities that we have, including the Pawtucket Red Sox and Learfield Sports and some other groups that we have. Providence Bruins are also involved, where we provide our students uh, you know, internship opportunities. Uh, we bring these teams and these organizations that are executives into our classrooms and have them lecture, teach classes, all kinds of things. So it's really a unique opportunity. We're the only school in the country that has a unique partnership like this uh, with a, a professional team like the Patriots. And I anticipate that this will probably be uh, not so much the, um, uh, the exception, it will become the rule in coming years. But you know, when you're a small liberal arts school uh, that depends on, you know, recruiting for, you know, bringing in students, you have to carve your niche. And so I guess maybe what I'm doing now after doing so many different things for so many years, Joel, um, I guess I'm trying to carve a niche finally after 40 some odd years of work in this business. I was going to say what what I feel like we're leaving out like some history. Um, can you, what other things, because uh, I know that I, I was trying to make the laundry list yesterday and I was like, this is sure. probably just easier to ask John. Um, I mean, it ranges like you've done like USFL going back to, yeah. I know obviously you started in Texas too. Yeah, um, right. I, I guess the Cliff Notes version of kind of what even took you to, to Boston and all the different things you've been able to have your hands in. Well, uh, let's see. Um, I'll go back to the mid to late 80s. Uh, I worked for the San Antonio Spurs for six years uh, as uh, one of their, their TV voices and their backup on radio. Uh, and so that's where I kind of got my start at a very young age. I was in the NBA at age 23. So I, I really was in the right place at the right time and very fortunate at an early stage of my career. Uh, because I had, you know, been versatile while I was in school and in college. Uh, I came out of college as, you know, uh, wanted, I did radio in college, and I was the very first voice of the Texas Lady Longhorns back in the uh, late 1970s, believe it or not, before uh, they had even uh, started to do radio on a regular basis, which they do now. Uh, 
women's basketball was still in its infancy. This is back in the days of Nancy Lieberman and and uh, you know, and some others who were trailblazers in the sport back at Old Dominion in the late seventies. And so Texas had a really good team back then, and they held a campus-wide audition for the very first voice of the Lady Longhorns. And guess who won the audition? Me. <laughs> And, and, and I, I, had not, I had no idea that that's what I really wanted to get into because I was on a journalism scholarship at UT, and I really wanted to be a writer. You know, my goal in life was actually to be a beat writer in the Southwest Conference because I loved college football so much. And as it turned out, I discovered that being a team broadcaster was very much the electronic version of being a beat guy. And so I, I found a love for it initially there, even though I sidetracked myself into television out of school because it helped pay the bills. And, you know, hey, the bright lights of TV, they blind just about everybody in this business <laughs> from time to time. And then you learn. You learn after a while. If you're lucky, you can still, you know, you know, be relevant in this business without being attracted like a moth to, you know, a, a bug fryer. Uh, you know, you can still be, uh, you know, uh, relevant in this business. And so I kind of got back to radio after a while. But uh, I was in San Antonio for a while. I had an agent at the time. And he, when I was doing, I had left the Spurs because they had actually decided to downsize and go back to a simulcast, which eliminated my TV-only job at the time. But the funny thing about it is, is I stayed with the Spurs uh, on a part-time basis through two ways. Number one, they hired me as their arena announcer for a season, which is how I got into the whole stadium announcing thing and it led me to get my job with, you know, uh, the Patriots mm. uh, back in the early 90s about the time that Bill Parcells came around. And then um, uh, number two, um, it, it, the TV station that I had gone to work for in San Antonio actually had the over-the-air contract for the Spurs games. So I ended up doing a half a dozen to a dozen Spurs games a year for a couple of years as well. So it's always good never to burn your bridges. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, was working for the ABC affiliate in San Antonio, and the agent told me, he said, what do you think of Providence, Rhode Island? And I'm like, I don't think anything about Providence, Rhode Island. I, I said, you know, eh, you know, I, I didn't really think much about it. And so it just so happens that the news anchor that I worked with in San Antonio was a native of Rhode Island, an absolute, and he was a native. And he, uh, and so I asked him, and he's from Cumberland, Rhode Island. He said, oh, you got to go. He said, that's a great place to go. It's a stepping stone into Boston. It's a really good market. It's progressive, yada, yada. And, and, and you'll love Rhode Island, living on the ocean, everything. And so I took a visit up here, and, and I decided I did like it. And uh, I stayed up here for 30 years, although I didn't really work in Providence for that long. I worked three years at the original TV station in Providence. Gosh, and then I worked four years at a competitor in Providence. And then after that, I spent 11 years on television in Boston, uh, working for a TV station that no longer has a news department. Again, a victim of cutdowns. But through all that time, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, I got the job uh, at Providence College as the voice of the Friars back in 1989. And then um, uh, I did Boston College football on the radio for six seasons uh, before uh, a rights holder change, you know, flipped me out of that. And then I ended up doing Big East football uh, for the IMG network until the Big East imploded, no longer did football. So I, I've had an interesting list. I have to sit down and probably figure out a way to document it all myself because I don't know if I can keep up with it, Joel. My my memory's starting to fade on me after all these years. <laughs> it's one of those things, I mean, like, if you take a, a step back and look at it, and even if you want to go back to, like, 23-year-old John Rook, when you're in the NBA, um, kind of what was the what was the plan when you were that age kind of looking forward um and then how did how did it kind of snake its way into what it became um as you got older 
you know, I don't know that I've ever really had a chance to reflect on that. I remember an old girlfriend one time telling me that, you know, she said, uh, you know, what do you want to do uh, with your life now that you're kind of into the sports thing? And and I said, well, you know, I, I'd kind of like to be like a Bob Costas, you know, I'd kind of like to, you know, do some things, you know, like he does and host the Olympics. And I really was a huge fan of, um, um, uh, oh, gosh, now it's going to escape me here. Um, McCoy, ABC. Yeah. Um... Not Al McCoy. Um, you know, you know, well, that's exactly what I was thinking yeah, of. But no, Al McCoy, too. obviously, the Phoenix Suns for years. Uh, McKay, Jim, Jim, McKay. Jim McKay. Thank you, Jim McKay. How could I forget that? But again, <laughs> that's my addled brain. Um, uh, Jim McKay. I remember I had a huge. Uh, he had a huge influence on my life at one time, and it really was through how he handled the tragedy of the 1972 Munich Olympic Games, when those Israeli athletes were were uh, you know just tragically gunned down by terrorists. And I remember watching that unfold on TV, and I said, "Man, I got to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be able to have that kind of a feeling because you could you could feel his pain through the words that he used back in 1972. And of course, I had my own favorites back then. I was a huge fan of Vern Lundquist because Vern had the job that every kid growing up in the Dallas Fort Worth area wanted. He was the voice of the Dallas Cowboys, and he was the you know main sports anchor at WFAA Channel Eight in Dallas for a while. And so uh, Vern was a huge influence. And then nationally, you know, every kid that I've ever known has wanted to be like Marv Albert at some point in time. And then for me, I included Bob Costas in the mix because Costas was and still is uh, just a smooth presence. And he had a boyish look that, you know, honestly, he's one of those guys like Dick Clark. I wondered if he ever made a deal with the devil, you know, and said, for eternal youth, you know, this is what you get in return, you know, or, and, or, you know or, you, or I have your soul until the end of time or whatever it may be because Costas never aged. And so I wanted to be that kind of a presence. I wanted to be a friendly, welcoming presence into, into households. Because I thought that was the one way to be able to connect with your audience. I've always had, and I guess it's one of the reasons why I've lasted as long as I have, you know, 40 years in this business now, is because I've always realized that, you know, to really have an effect on people, you had to become a presence. You had to make a connection. And that's the only way that you, you know, because you're going to, the volatility of this business is going to shake you up every now and then. I don't know anybody that hasn't been touched, you know, by a firing or a layoff or anything like this in this business because so much changes over time. And I kind of liken it to notching, you know, uh, uh, getting uh, notches on your gun belt. You know, if you're a gunslinger in the Old West where every guy that you shoot and kill, you know, you've heard stories and seen movies on that. And I've got plenty of notches on my gun, sh- on my gun belt for the times that I've been killed in this business. But I keep bouncing back up. And, and I would tell you, I think it's because you've been able to not only establish relationships, but you've been able to make connections with your audience. And, and I've really found that, you know, the way that you get people into the business and into what you're doing and interested in what you're doing is by making that connection and making them feel like they're a part of it. So I started that in college. I've been fortunate enough to continue that with the arrangements and, and the relationships that I made through the years. And even though that, you know, I've, I've bounced around like a ping pong ball from time to time, I've always felt that if you remain true to your audience, your people will be your, your friends, your followers, uh, your audience will, you know, undoubtedly the majority of them will be loyal in return. And I think that's kind of what's kept me afloat for a long time. I want to come back to the, uh, that, creating a presence and, and connection in a second, but if I can take a quick quick detour. Sure. Um, you mentioned yeah. the Olympics, so I just wanted to ask while yeah. we're on it, uh, were you on the Olympic Committee? I was on the 1984 Olympic Committee uh, in Los Angeles. I worked for um, 
the main press center, uh, which was in the Los Angeles uh, Convention Center in downtown L.A. And believe it or not, I was uh, I had two jobs. Uh, number one, I was a, a video viewing supervisor at the time for the L.A. Olympic Committee, because back in 1984, you'll recall, videotape was still relatively in its infancy. It had only really existed for about eight to ten years as TV stations converted from film uh, to videotape in the mid to late 70s. And so uh, what we did was a first in the L.A. Uh, uh, in Los Angeles. We set up uh, video viewing libraries at four different venues around the L.A. Olympic Games where journalists literally did not have to leave the press center to cover the games. Because in, in Los Angeles and Southern Cal, some of the games are kind of spread out a little bit. So we made it easy for them. If they you know, were you know, uh, going to one event but couldn't cover another one at the same time that was happening simultaneously, all they had to do was check in with us. They'd stop at one of the video viewing so facilities, and they could watch uh, the entire event on a videotape replay. That was our job to set that up. And so we did that back in 84. And so while I did that in 84, I got to work the overnight shift. So I became real friendly with the Australian journalists because they were on an opposite time frame, right? So, you know, their prime time was our overnight. And so uh, that was actually kind of interesting. And then the other thing I did was is I was actually the voice of the, uh, of the Los Angeles Convention Center. So... Um, I would make the announcements for all the visiting media and worldwide media and have to share it, you know, with the guy who uh, translated into French. Uh, and I'm trying to remember what other, I think it was German, but I can't remember. So I would lead off and then the French one would come in and the, no, the Spanish one would come in. And then it, it was kind of a, uh, an interesting uh, lesson in, um, uh, in, in international relations, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. But so I did those two things for the three weeks during the Olympic games and I had a blast. You know, and uh, I would never trade that for a minute. Uh, it was a unique experience. I met a lot of great people, some of whom I'm actually still in touch with to this day, 34 years later. And a uh, wonderful experience. And um, uh, I learned a lot about, uh, uh, you know, personal relations and international relations and getting along with people at that time. I'm going to do a cardinal sin here and ask two questions at once. Um, but Go. indulge me if you will. Um, no worries. Uh, the first is, uh, how does one get on the Olympic Committee? And then the second is, what do you <laughs> learn from Australian journalists being around them all that much? <laughs> Well, number one, how do you get on the Olympic Committee? I think it was blind luck because I had a bunch <laughs> of friends who were in the sports information uh, business. Uh, and we were all really close back in the early 80s because several of us had gone to the University of Texas together. So um, we stayed in touch, you know, right out of school. I was three, four years removed from graduating. I graduated from UT in 81. Uh, and so this was 1983. And they were, uh, I remember being together with them. I, in fact, I think I remember this specific instance. We were all together at the New Year's Eve, 1983, getting ready to turn into 1984, Cotton Bowl Ball. They actually held a ball on New Year's Eve because I remember dancing uh, right next to Fred Akers and his wife, who was the head coach at Texas at the time. And the next day they were going to lose to Georgia when they could have won the national championship if they had beaten the Bulldogs that day. But so I was out on the floor with him at the stroke of midnight. So uh, but I didn't kiss him. Trust me, I did not kiss him. Um, <laughs> But uh, all these friends, we were at the Cotton Bowl Ball together, and we were talking about, hey, you know, did you know that the uh, uh, Los Angeles Olympic Committee is looking for people to volunteer and to help? And I'm like, no, that sounds like a blast. And so I put my name in, and they contacted me. <laughs> and they thought with my uh, unique skill set of having video experience uh, with professional experience and collegiate experience that I would be really good at 
doing this, what they were hoping to establish, which was these video viewing libraries. And so uh, I got pulled into it, and that's how I got into it, number one. And then the issue with um, the Australian journalists, those guys were a hoot. They were an absolute hoot. I, I met, and I can't even remember the guy's name, but the guy was the American equivalent of Bob Barker. <laughs> he, he hosted a game show that was very similar to um, – uh, to the prices right in, in Australia. And he was a huge media hit. So he was getting pulled left and right and for all these hits and, and, and by the other Australian journalists. And, and we sat down, I remember together a couple of nights, probably about three, three thirty in the morning, West coast time. But this was like, you know, prime time in, in Australia. And, and he was telling stories. And, and I have to admit, I had a real hard time with his accent, but at the same time, you know, it was still English. Right. And so I was able to decipher a lot of it. And I, and I found those guys incredibly witty, funny, and very good at what they did. Very good at what they did. And that helped me kind of realize that, you know, yes, certainly it's about journalism and it's about reporting, about getting the story up, but it was also about making it furthered my initial belief of making a contact, make a connection with your audience. Those guys could do it very, very well with their Australian audience. So I learned a little from those guys. Let's go back there then. Uh, let's talk about creating that connection. Um, how did you best do it? What, when you decided, when you kind of made that, that conscious choice early in your career, like, I know I need to be able to have a presence, connect, create, be relatable. Um, how do you do that? How, how do you create that? You know, I don't think there's any one uh, real way for any one person to do it. I think it probably happens differently for, for different people in this business. I, I would tell you in my own regard, uh, I, I think it came from nothing more than a sheer desire to be liked. We all want to be liked. We all want to be loved. We all want to be appreciated for what we do. But being in a business as volatile as this is, where really you're not paid to be liked, uh, and if you're liked, it's really a bonus. And if you're liked, I would tell you that it won't last long. Just wait a minute, and then someone will hate on you, especially with the advent of social media. But I, I always wanted to stay true to that. I felt like I had to be true to myself. And so I don't think of myself uh, as an ass. I don't. You know, I, I probably have been from time to time from some people, but it never came intentionally. I always like to think I'm a nice guy. I've always tried to live by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so because I'd like for people to treat me nicely and fairly, I've always tried to go in, especially in new relationships, doing that very same thing to other people. It's a very simple rule, I think, to live by. I don't have to be, you know, edgy or, you know, smart alecky uh, or anything like that or, or a jerk or an ass or anything like that. I just want to be myself. And so that's all I really tried to do. And I realized very quickly that some people are going to take advantage of you. Some people weren't going to like you no matter how nice you were to them. And so for those people, you just kind of say, okay, have a nice day, and you move on because you're not going to change their minds anyway. But for the majority of the people, they want to be a part of what it is that you do because we're in a business that a lot of people would love to be in. Let's face it. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in sports 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? I mean, who wouldn't want to follow their, you know, and, and travel with and, 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 and have seats courtside, you know, of their favorite team's games? I mean, my goodness, think about that. When you get a chance to walk into a place like Madison Square Garden, 
the mecca of basketball, and you call that your office for a week when I go to the Big East Tournament in Madison Square Garden in New York every year, or go to a Super Bowl, or uh, walk to a baseball stadium, and you see this field of emerald green opening up in front of you and say, wow, I get to work here. I get paid to be here. That's incredible. And I think a lot of guys in our business now, Joel, kind of forget that sometimes. You know, they're immediately attracted to, as I said earlier, you know, the bright lights and be careful because, you know, moths are also attracted to bright lights <laughs> and they get fried. So uh, all I would tell you is, is that I've never lost sight of that. And I realize that most people really would love to do that. And they were never either able to do that because they weren't good enough or they had to, you know, or whatever. And they never really thought about it until they got involved. And so they see that. And so they want a piece of you because it helps connect them closer to the teams and the emotions uh, of the teams that they follow. And I've never taken that for granted. And so I've given them the time I've given them, you know, uh, you know, the shirt off my back on occasion. I've, you know, I've, I've uh, acknowledged them as being present in my life because I know how they feel because I was that way at one time in my life when I was a kid just growing up and, you know, trying to get involved. And, and I, and I fell into this business purely by accident. Anyway, I'll be honest. I, I thought I would be an attorney. You know, my nickname when I was younger was the senator because I would never shut up. <laughs> and, and it's because I could always kind of tell a story and spin a yarn. And I guess I had a, a knack for that. And so each and every broadcast that I do, I try to tell a story because that's what we do. We're storytellers. You know, you come up with a theme, you have a lead, you have the body, you have a catch at the end, whatever it may be. You know, however you style your, your journalistic pieces, I've never, I've never strayed too far from that. And then um, I, I guess – just one thing after another has kind of led to, you know, I've gone from place to place and people have, you know, been appreciative. And then some people have called me into their office and said, you know, Johnny, we got to let you go, you know? And, and so, okay, why did I do anything wrong? No, nope, no, nope, just can't pay anymore. <laughs> and that was, that was the conversation I had with the, the San Antonio Spurs general manager at one time. So, you know, he said, well, we, we need to cut back on a few things. We're going to bring Sammy back, Sam Smith. It was, at ESPN, he had left, and then he came back, and he would only come back as if he did the the, uh, the simulcast because of the salary demand that he had. And so the, I was the young guy, and they cut me loose because they thought I could get a job quicker. That the true story, true story. And uh, as it turns out, it was probably you know it hurt at the time because here I had been in the NBA for six years. I was 28 years old or whatever, and I thought I was finished. I thought I was washed up. And ended up getting a job at the ABC, uh, ABC affiliate in San Antonio and still doing games. And I developed another career as a stadium announcer at the time along the way and then ended up coming to the Northeast. And, geez, I've stayed here for 30 years, and I've had two kids here, and I've you know, got the love of my life here, and, and uh, I'm teaching, and I'm trying to influence others who want to get into this business. And I really could not have asked for a better gift you know, and turning you know, what was a negative into a positive in my life. So I've been very fortunate. From uh, for for what it's worth, coming from me too, if I can hit on the uh, the the creating the connection thing too, and it just it, it might even sound silly and small, but I just remember. I mean, this is like a month ago. I'm driving around uh, my way to the the airport in Providence. I just done the the Rhode Island game um, yep. that I did a couple of weeks yep. ago, and yep. I, I'm listening to you on the radio, and you were interviewing Ed Cooley, and I was like, dang, I feel like I'm sitting in the room with these two, um, and I almost like in the moment I kind of reevaluated. I was like, well, let me see if I can. Next time I sit down and, and, and talk to, to, you know, our head coach, James Whitford, when I got back to Ball State, I was like, mm -hmm. hey, I'm, I'm going I'm to take this approach. We'll see if we can have a little bit more of a normal human conversation as opposed to a, you know, straight up sit down interview. So, I, I mean, that was the sure. that I, that 
in in the the short time I was able to tune in just to that one game, uh, that was the impression that that got left on me. So uh, I mean, if I, if, I, if I can, for what it's worth, uh, compliment you on that line. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And again. I try to, the only thing that I've ever, it's not really from being lazy or anything like that or being overly prepared, whatever. I prepare like anybody else, you know, going into an interview with, you know, two or three general ideas that I want to talk about. But I've always thought that the best interviewers are the best listeners. And so I'll come in with two or three things that I want to, you know, talk about, but then I'll listen to what's being said. And if I change direction, it's because I sense a moment to change direction. And so I think that people that I've interviewed have always appreciated that about me. And I want to be able to give my audience something that they really can't get anywhere else other than, say, a canned response like you normally get from most media outlets. I want people to feel exactly as you felt, Joel, when you heard that interview. I want them to feel like they're sitting in the middle of a conversation between two friends sitting at the bar talking basketball. One of them just happens to be the head coach of a Big East program. you know. Yeah. And so that's, that's the whole premise behind – how I've styled it. And it's fortunate that Ed and I get along as well as we do. We've been, we, we've been friends for, you know, several years before he came to Providence, you know, when he was an assistant coach at Rhode Island, you know, and I was running the, um, uh, the cable television company, the programming department, uh, where, you know, uh, we used to do Rhode Island's games. And then he moved to Boston college with, with, uh, Al Skinner at the time. And, uh, then I started doing BC uh, football. And then I backed up on a few basketball games for them as well. I kind of double dipped doing Providence and Boston college. And believe me, there's some Friar fans who still won't forgive me for that, <laughs> but Hey, listen, when you're a freelancer, man, you take <laughs> the money where you get it. You, you owe your allegiance to your paycheck and that's all you owe your allegiance to but ed and i would actually we room together on the road oh, for wow. a couple you know for a couple of occasions because you know i don't want to say anybody was cheap well let's just say we <laughs> had to room together on the road for a couple of times and so that's where ed and i really got to know each other so when he came to providence you know i it, it was tremendous you know and he greeted me with a with a handshake and a hug and he said hey roomy what's happening you know so <laughs> i thought that was really cool and and we've just always hit it off He's an easygoing, down-to-earth guy, and I'm very lucky that I have a head coach that I get a chance to work with like that. And I wish that upon any broadcaster to have a relationship like that with his head coach. Some are easier to be warm and fuzzy with than others. That's very true. But even I've found that even the most um, uh, strict coaches out there, they've all got a human side to them. You've just got to work to try to find it. And I would say the best way to do it is to be honest with it and that when you – uh, have a chance because conversation is going to happen and they ask you to keep something in confidence, you keep it in confidence. It's quite simple. Then that level of trust builds up. And when you have that level of trust, I would tell you that you can have that kind of relationship with just about anybody. I'm going to go out on a limb. Um, there's 351 of us. The, the count is probably at less than 10 who have been roommates with their head coach, I would think. <laughs> well, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, and it was a quirk uh, of the scheduling <laughs> issue that that, that that happened, and he wasn't even the head coach when we were roommates together. But we learned a little something about each other. Yeah. Like, Ed snores like a freaking freight train. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately for him, he's uh, in the last couple of years he's undergone um, – uh, uh, that laparoscopy, whatever they call it, stomach <laughs> surgery. I can't, I can't even pronounce it right. Yeah. Uh, and and so and he'd been on a CPAP machine for a while, but he had stomach reduction surgery, and he's lost, he lost over a hundred pounds. Oh, and, wow. and 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 so he's back more to normal himself, but he doesn't have the extra weight that he was carrying for all those years. And so, 
um, it's it's improved you know, his his life and his lifestyle and and everything else. And he still has problems like everybody, every other you know middle aged man in his forties. But um, you know, I know for a fact that he looks better, he feels better, and he handles stress much differently now than he used to. So I, I'm I'm happy for him as a friend because you know all coaches go down this life uh, down this road where stress just eats at you you know and you got to figure out a way to handle it otherwise you really won't be in the profession for too much longer or you're gonna die a young man it's that simple this is a very hard profession to get into and I would you know I would also say the same is true for a lot of announcers you know yeah. because of the lifestyle that you lead you you really have to learn how to handle the lifestyle because it's not easy. If I can go back to, uh, you, you talked about being a storyteller um, and, and being able to set things up uh, in a game as a story. And I'm sure some of this goes back to, you know, you wanting to be a writer originally, too. And I know you've, you've talked in other interviews about the importance of, of all of us being able to be good writers and have that translate. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you set stories up in, in, a, in a broadcast? And I, and I mean that from the standpoint of, of a constant arc. When you come into a game and you kind of sit down, and obviously what happens in a game will will change and, and kind of dictate um, how that story is going to play out on its own right. But do you kind of have a plan in your mind of here's where I want to start, we'll see where the game takes me, but here's how I kind of want to, here's how I want to get there. These are the stories I want to tell. These This is the picture I want to paint about who these two teams are and, and, and kind of how you have an idea of getting from A to B with the game in between. Great question. Uh, and I would tell you that... Um, there's there's no real rocket science to this. Uh, you you let the way the team plays sort of unfold the story for you. I'll give you a great example. Uh, tonight, Providence plays Seton Hall, uh, and and it just so happens that my broadcast partner, who's been with me for 30 years, Joe Hassett, uh, he's uh, he has a, a a primary job other than his basketball <laughs> analyst work, and he's actually in the Cayman Islands this week. Lucky bastard. So. Uh, I have to solo broadcast tonight. So I did a little extra homework because I have to not only be play by play, but I also have to throw in some color and some analysis work as well. And, and, you know, just in order to, to round out the broadcast tonight. And so I, you know, the, the broadcast is really going to kind of tell itself. You've got two teams that you have to consider still on the bubble for the upcoming NCAA tournament. Um, one team is, uh, probably has it in a little bit better shape than the other, uh, which would be Providence because they have wins over both Villanova and Xavier, but at the same time, Seton Hall owns a win over Providence. And so the pirates, you know, uh, having struggled, I think they've lost seven of 11, uh, as I was doing my homework earlier overall, then, uh, they might need this road game and a road game against a top 50 RPI team is going to be doubly huge for them. Whereas the Friars really have to not get swept because they've already lost on the road to Seton Hall this year. So that's an easy starting point right there. And that's what most of the audience really cares about. So you can just basically, you know, kind of you let the way that the season has unfolded tell the story for you. And then always realizing that, um, uh, you know, the audience that you have uh, is transient. You don't know when they're going to click on a stream. You don't know when they're going to tune on the radio. You don't know if they're going to find you by accident, you know, on Sirius XM or whatever. You know, I, I'm going to digress for just a moment because it just reminded me when I mentioned Sirius. Um, apparently, our games are on at Sirius XM. I don't know which channel they're on from game to game, but <laughs> I know they do get picked up from time to time. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, I got an email uh, just a week ago. Uh, from a, a doctor, a, a woman doctor, who with her husband, they were traveling through the UP of Michigan, Upper Peninsula. 
and they were in the middle of a 12-hour trip. It was snowing, naturally. When is it not snowing in the UP at this time of year, Never, right? Yeah. Right? And, and so um, she said, we found your game. We're Xavier fans. We found your game on Sirius XM. And she sent me a note, and she obviously thought enough of it to look up my email address and find me and send me this note. And she said, I just want you to know, we were so thoroughly entertained by what you and your broadcast partner did. When we arrived at our destination, we sat in the car for the last half hour to listen to the finish. (laughs) And I'm just like, that's unbelievable. That's got to be the best compliment you can get. I, I have rarely received a compliment better than that from somebody who didn't know me from Adam other than the fact that we were doing our job so well, she and her husband couldn't afford that didn't want to turn off the radio. And, and so I'm just like, no, I'm just, I was speechless. I really don't know what to say, except thank you. You know, and sometimes that's all that you need. But, you know, she said, you remind us a lot of our guys, you know, Joe Sunderman and Byron Larkin, who have become good friends in the big East. And, uh, you know, Joe and Byron are good people. And they're also very good broadcasters. Byron's still the all-time leading scorer at Xavier. So, I mean, the dude could play, you know, when, when he played. And, and Joe was a, is a Xavier Letterman, too, believe it or not. So they have incredible basketball knowledge. And, uh, and, and so I just thought for them to com- – for someone to compare us to their own guys, you know, because nobody can do wrong if they're your guys, right? Just like, you know, Ball State fans for you. You're the absolute best. And you know what? That's great. That's how it's supposed to be. And for someone to step out and do that, I was flabbergasted with, totally flabbergasted with. So I've always tried to remember that, number one, you know, you're making a connection with the audience where you think you are not. Number two, the way that you hook people in is by giving them a storyline, giving them a theme to start with. And number three, you've got to remember, periodically, because the audience is so transient, you've got to revisit that storyline. You have to go back and say, hey, you know, you know, again, this is what's at stake. This is what we have. This is what's going on. You try to recap wherever you can, uh, you know, and, and I love doing it at halftime, largely because my producer will play back, you know, uh, small highlights from what happened during the first half that kind of support the story that you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And so that way, if somebody had just, you know, caught the game at halftime or they caught it in mid-sentence or whatever, they're like trying to figure out what's going on. At some point in time, hopefully very soon after they tune in, you're going to be able to recap it where they can pick up like they had been there from the start. And I think that's hugely important. So that's how I kind of do what I do. Are there ways that, I mean, is there a way that you you prep that or organize yourself? I mean, somebody had told me a couple of weeks ago, you know, they have a note card that no matter what, they can look down on it. And here's three or four things that are important to each team coming in. Um, So if I need something, here's where I can go back to because that's ultimately what the game comes down to. Yeah, like like any broadcaster, you know, in football you've got flip charts that you know uh, broadcasters usually put together. And I know you're familiar with those. Mm-hmm. And in in basketball, what I did is I took an adaptation, probably 25, almost 30, yeah, probably 30 years ago, uh, from an old NCAA scorebook. And so I would have the players listed. And I I like to keep running score during games, during football games that I broadcast. I actually keep a play chart, so I know how long drives are and how long plays are and things like that. But in basketball, I keep score. So I know whether or not a two is a two or a three is a three and how many free throws and how many fouls they have. I've just always done that because I felt like that that keeps me tied into the broadcast and keeps me invested in my storytelling. I've always done that. Not everybody does that. A lot of announcers will sit there and just call the game and and they've got a statistician or a producer or they let their color guy handle or whatever. And whatever works for an individual is what I tell you that's what you should subscribe to. But I adapted, you know, my my sheets 
from an old NCAA scorebook and created columns on the side where I could put in notes. And so I put two or three bullet points, you know, and, and old stats from, you know, uh, previous years from, you know, returning players. And then toward the bottom of my sheet where I've got extra uh, brackets involved, you know, I've got, you know, uh, uh, highlights, key points, uh, things I want to try to hit on, you know, for each broadcast, knowing full well that if I'm lucky, I might get 30 to 40% use of those notes in any given broadcast. So, you know, I don't try to squeeze, you know, uh, five pounds of sausage into a three pound bag. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Sometimes it just doesn't fit. So I just leave it alone. But I always look for something pertinent. Every time out that we take, and knowing how the, the game is going, I will look down on my, my, my chart to see if I've put a note down or if I remember something from my studies earlier in the week as I prep for broadcast. Is there anything that's appropriate, anything that's apparent, anything that should be, you know, sending up a red flag right here at this moment in time? So I'm always looking down at my notes or my cheat sheets, whichever you want to call them, to see if I've got something appropriate. Invariably, I find something. So I've always got – I always try to – come back with a, 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 a fun fact to know and tell. I want to tell my audience two or three times a game something that they may not have known before. That's my goal. And if I feel like I do that once or twice a game, that I've achieved a goal, and hopefully somebody has been informed as well as being entertained. And, and so that's, that's really just a, a common theme with everything that I try to do. I don't want anybody to say, oh, it's just old Rook. You know, it's just, you know, uh, you know uh, I don't really pay attention. I just kind of have mom because you like putting on a comfortable pair of slippers, you know. <laughs> that, that, that can be good in its own right, but I also want to keep them on their toes. I want them to feel like this is appointment listening because if I don't pay attention, I'm going to miss something I wish I hadn't. How do you find time to keep running score in football? Well, um, you know what? I don't really know other than to tell you. <laughs> or is there a shorthand that, that works? I, yeah, it's, you know what? It's just a simple reporter's notebook, uh, and, and I will uh, put you know the initial of the team up at the top of it, uh, whoever has the ball, and then I'll put down the yard line they start. So if they start at the 20-yard line, uh, I put the, I'll put the number 20 underneath that, that, that team, mm. and then you know, the first play is a handoff off right tackle for three yards, then the next number that goes down is 23. And I just keep pro- progressing. And then I also always mark where first downs come in and drives. And I felt like it's something that I could do without really even thinking about it. So that way I kind of spot my own, you know, if I have a spotter and I'm fortunate enough to have a spotter, he'll point, you know, to whoever makes the tackle or whatever, because I usually like to spot offense myself. And I do this for the Patriot games and the NFL that I do. You know, I will always spot offense, but I'll have my, my uh, spotter in the booth with me all I want you to do is concentrate on defense. Tell me who makes the hit, who makes the tackle. Point to that number on the spot chart. That's all I need you to do. And in the NFL, at Gillette Stadium, our windows are open, so it's pretty damn noisy. <laughs> so I have a headset on, and my spotter has a headset on, and it's just the two of us. We have a private channel. And so they'll open up the microphone, and they'll say 57. Or they'll open up, and they'll say 22 or whatever number made the hit. And so I automatically know that number and boom. And I go right to my chart. If I don't know the number already and, you know, and then I announce who makes the tackle and it's pretty simple. Uh, but in radio, uh, they'll just point to whoever makes the tackle. And, uh, I have the yardage, I have the down, I have the distance. I have all of that already just because I feel like it keeps me in the flow of a game. And so when I stay engaged, I stay in the flow, man, do those games fly by. Yeah. They really fly by. So I just 
kind of taught myself how to do it. I, that's not for everybody, but it really keeps me engaged and keeps me invested in the broadcast. I've tried a couple times, and it always lasts about four plays until I miss one. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I've been there, done that too. But I, I've, I've, in, in my time, uh, I've had uh, really good spotters uh, and producers. Uh, you know, God rest his soul, uh, one of my best friends in life, a gentleman by the name of John Zanini who passed away from cancer last summer. Uh, he was my, you know, 25 year, uh, spotter and statistician on Providence broadcast. And he always did, uh, uh, BC football and big East football with me as well. I always took him with me wherever I went. Uh, but John kind of taught me how to do that just because he was so efficient at his job. I was able to develop that kind of a talent alongside. And, uh, so I owe a lot of that to, to, to Johnny Z. He good people and left this world way, way too soon. You've mentioned it a couple of times, uh, so I want to be able to, to get to it before we, before we finish. Um, you've talked a lot about the Patriots and uh, being the PA voice there. Um, and I, I don't want to speak in gross generalities because I'm sure I'm going to miss one or two, but I, I don't know if we've had somebody on before who also does uh, a lot of public address work. Uh, what's, I mean, there's obviously some differences, but what's different about the performance aspect of it? And, and maybe how does it make you a better broadcaster um, from being exposed to that side of the business too? That's the best question you've asked today. And I would tell you the answer is very simple. Uh, in public address, there's more of an entertainment value to it than there is with just calling a game. Interesting. Way more entertainment value. You know, we look at it, you know, with the Patriots, we have our own internal broadcast because nowadays in order to, you know, keep 68, 70, 75, 100, however many thousand people you have in your stands, how do you keep them coming back? How, how do you get them to continue to spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for tickets when they could just sit in the comfort of the living room at home and have a 50-yard line seat with that 60-inch big screen on their wall? How do you get people to come out and keep paying money to do this? And the answer is very, very easy. You entertain the hell out of them. So you have to give them things that they cannot get while they're sitting at home. I mean, yeah, they're paying you know ten, eleven dollar beers and and, and twelve dollar nachos and and seven dollar hot dogs, and oh, that's ridiculous when you can just get up and go to your fridge while you're at home. So you must be giving them something that makes it worthwhile to come to those games. And so what we do for that uh, captive audience of say seventy thousand, I know that's you know what our audience generally is for uh, for Patriot games at Gillette. Uh, you you, you got to give them emotion. You got to give them energy. You got to give them entertainment value. You got to give them that jolt in their seat that they can't get sitting at home on the couch. And so uh, I learned this really from my time doing the Spurs years ago uh, when I was at Old Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio as their as their arena voice. Um, and so now, of course, at NBA arenas throughout the country, you hear those guys really go off, you know, and, and, and they really put some showmanship into it. And, you know, the all-star game in the NBA this last week was a little overboard. If you ask me, I mean, my God, what were we watching? Were we watching a sporting event or the freaking Emmys? You know, <laughs> I thought that was a little too much, but be that as it may, that's kind of the way that, you know, the entertainment uh, aspect of it has taken on a life of itself nowadays. And, and so you almost have to overemphasize things and, and you find things that you can hang on that can become sort of, kitschy if not catchy if you know what i'm saying to where fans can you know have fun with it um and, and so i did that i remember the first year that i did it uh, uh alvin robertson 
uh, was a guard for the Spurs at the time. And so when I would introduce him, I would give it a big Alvin and I would roll the R. Robertson. And it's do something like that. And the fans went nuts. They thought it was the best thing. Because you got to remember, in, in the, uh, the Hispanic language, there's a lot of R rolling going yeah. on, right? Yeah. And so I just put a little Hispanic twist to you know a really good guard and it caught on and so every time i would be out people would say hey i've been robert you know they would give me one of those and so that's how it really caught on so you know you just learn to put a little bit of entertainment value to it realizing of course that uh, you can get in the way of someone's enjoyment if you overdo it so you don't want to be the show you want to be part of the show and part of our show we keep in mind is i mean i have a script to follow i have a uh, uh, you know, I, I've got to be mindful of, you know, uh, what's up on the, 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 the big jumbotrons, you know, inside the stadium. We try to augment that. We try not to take away from it because it is like producing an entirely different separate television broadcast from the one that people would see on CBS or Fox. But we produce this broadcast, this entertainment broadcast for the 70,000 people that are in the arena you know, that are in the stadium. And so that's what we do. And we just try to keep that in mind, everything we do. And, and, and it, it's not as much journalism, even though I have a bit of that, because I do have to call the game because there are people who are walking about and want to keep track of the game and they can only keep track of the game through your call. You know, it's first and 10 on the 37 yard line, blah, blah, blah. But you also, when you have the chance, you need to put a little something, something behind it. And so we came up, with our, our game entertainment manager, this is back in the oh, probably mid-1990s, more than 20 years ago, We're talking with a gentleman by the name of Gary Gradecki. And Gary's like, we really need to do something to get the fans behind it because we have fans who sit on their hands. Mm-hmm. And, and we were in old Foxborough Stadium at the time and, and you know, the old concrete bleachers and, and then the 50-yard line, the 40-yard line seats, season ticket were sitting on these old aluminum benches on these concrete bleachers. And, I mean, they literally froze their asses, all right? <laughs> so we got to do something to get these people involved. And so we're like, he was like, what would you think about trying to do something to see if we get the fans to join you in announcing something? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And so we just kind of kicked around with things, and we came up with the whole idea of, of trying to get the fans to call the first down. And so for three or four years, I would lead fans into it by saying that's good for another Patriots, and I would pause. And then I would emphasize, first down, you know, and just do it with a little emphasis. And, of course, back at the time, back at that time, the NFL, we got a lot of warnings from the NFL back then because they thought I was cheerleading. I wasn't cheerleading. I was trying to get the fans involved. And, and if that's cheerleading, so be it. But our issue was is we needed to get – we needed more and, and – Again, you have to realize you are a team employee, okay? So you need to try to understand what the team wants you to do. This is where it differentiates from being a journalist or being a reporter. You are a team employee. And they were interested in trying to get more involvement from the fans and give them the quote-unquote bang for the buck. We started on this back in the 90s with the Patriots. Mm. And it's something that's evolved to the stage now where we have this entire separate broadcast that, you know, geez, I wish we could stream it for people to follow it because I think it'd be a hell of, a, of an interesting thing to watch. And we've talked about doing that. The, you know, the Patriots had this 24-7 you know, online network at the Super Bowl this last year. And, and nobody had ever done that before. But I'm kind of skipping ahead here. So we, we, we tried to get the fans to jump into that. And it took us three or four years, I think, I like to kid and say it was kind of like, you know, trying to coach Pavlov's dog along a little bit. But um, uh, we finally got him to pick up and say first down. So I would say that's good for another Patriot, and then I would stop. And then the fans go nuts. 
first down, and they all get up and they point whichever direction they're going. Of course, now you hear that in Denver uh, when they say incomplete pass, and you hear that first down in stadiums all over the country. And I'm very proud to say uh, we started that back in the early to mid-'90s. And I only wish, Joel, that I had patented that damn thing first down or whatever back then (laughs) because now I'd be a rich man and I'd be living on an island and I wouldn't be talking to you probably right now. (laughs) Well. I, I guess then it worked out then because otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. Um, yeah, right. It's the important things. Uh, of course. <laughs> uh, how often, How long have you sounded like this too? And I just mean that from a, I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of bravado into a PA voice. Uh, people talk about having a broadcaster's voice. Um, and to some extent you are who you are. But right. I mean, to, to, to hone an instrument, did, did you have the one that you have or, or have you worked on it through the years? I've worked on it through the years. I like to say it was a lot of smoking and hard drinking, <laughs> but, but it, it really wasn't. That's how that's how the old timer uh, well, yeah. old timers used to do it. I mean, they used to drink and smoke heavily because they used to say. I remember I had several guys tell me they said, "You really want that deep gravelly sound sometimes to your voice? Go smoke a cigar, <laughs> you know, and then belt a couple of shots of bourbon or whiskey, you know, behind it, and then get on the microphone." I'm like, I couldn't do that. I'd be drunk off my rear, but. But I understood the thought process. So I, you know, through speech training and and practice and uh, through, you know, just working on enunciations and pronunciations and things, I kind of have learned how to do that. And one of the things that I really like to do with, you know, my later years in, in this business is I'd really like to get into voice acting thought a lot about it. Uh, I've done, um, uh, quite a bit of, you know, commercial work over my time, but I've never really, I never really have gotten into commercial work full time, uh, largely because of the job that I have here, you know, is, is too lucrative to do that. And commercial work can come and go in a heartbeat. If you've ever done any, you, you know, this, so you can be going really strong for about six months and then you get dry for a year and then, you know, you're on the unemployment line. So, um, I thought about it, but I've never really had to because I've been lucky to be involved in sports for so long, and so I've been able to train myself through more of a consistent form of employment. Uh, but I'm still waiting for the producer to call me, you know, and say, "Hey, we want you to voice this, you know, animated film, or we want you to come in and play this character, or we want to use your voice for this or that." And I've done some bit things for TV shows and things, but I'd really love to do film work just because I feel like that would be a natural. Um, uh, complement to what I've trained my whole life to do in and around sports is try to come up with different characters. You know, I've done some cartoon characters in the past. I've done, you know, Yosemite Sam from Looney Tunes and, and some others like that. And, uh, you know, just because uh, of, you know, well, p- people know that I'm from Texas originally, so I have to come up with a Texas spiel, right? And so, you know, I give them one of these and, you know, and this is what it sounds like out in the West Texas town of Marfa, you know, and so we we do some things like that and have fun with it from time to time. But, you know, uh, I'd love to do that someday. And so I guess when I grow up, I guess I'll probably try to, you know, go back to being a kid again, which I think would be a perfect, you know, basic 360 to my career. You could be the next movie trailer guy. Yes, I would love to be a movie trailer guy. <laughs> I absolutely would love to do that. If anybody wants to take a chance on me, <laughs> hell, I'll tell you what, I work cheap, so let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, last thing, I'll let you go, because I've, I've probably way overstepped your time. Um, but uh, I, I'd be remiss, you mentioned it off the top, and, and you just did too with the, the Dean College. Um, yeah. Now that you are, or that you have been, kind of a professor of journalism and broadcasting, um, the mechanics of broadcasting, how much does that, because you're working with 
kids on a day-to-day basis who are learning the craft. How much does yeah. it bring you back to your own fundamentals? Um, and, and how much has it kind of made you evaluate what is most important in a broadcast and, and maybe what is hardest for younger people that do this to, to grasp onto? Yeah, good questions again. Every day. Every day it takes me back. I, I give examples. Almost every lecture, almost every class that I teach, I give examples that I was taught by my own professors. Uh, you know, I had two professors that were very, very um, uh, instrumental in, in being where I am today. Uh, Al Anderson and Griff Singer uh, at the University of Texas. Uh, Dr. Singer is still with us, thank goodness. I really don't know what happened to Dr. Alan Anderson. He was my broadcast professor years ago, but you talk about a guy that had a booming voice. Man, he was very influential. Uh, And then there was another guy who was the public address voice uh, at the University of Texas at the time. This gentleman's name was Wally Pryor. And Wally was the voice of the Longhorns, with all due respect to Ron Franklin and some of the other radio people that you know came along. And now it's Craig Way, and Craig's become a very good friend of mine over the years. But... um, uh, Wally Pryor was the voice of Longhorns, and you know he hosted coaches shows. His brother Cactus Pryor was a well-known personality in Austin. These people were huge influences on me because their voices were singular, and by that I mean they resonated. They sounded good. Um, they they were uh, they had the right emphasis. Uh, they had energy. They had emotion. They had the whole package. And so uh, whenever I would hear those guys, and, and Dr. Anderson was one of those as well, um, I, I listened. They caused me to think, and they caused me to listen and to pay attention. And I always wanted to have a voice and a presence like that. And so when I speak like that to my kids, I tell them, you know, it's important that you grab attention because there's so much going on, especially in this day and age of, you know, a million channels and digital media and social media and everything that's out there. There's so much going on. How are you going to grab somebody's attention? How are you going to grab it, not only grab it, but how are you going to keep it before somebody clicks you off or, or, or cl- clicks off your webpage and goes to another site? Or How are you going to keep that yeah. attention? Yeah. And, and so that's what we work on every day, and I give examples from my mentors back in the day. And, and Griff Singer uh, was the one who first told me, hey, you can be a writer. You're good. You could be a writer. And so I ended up writing for the Daily Texan and becoming assistant sports editor and using my journalism scholarship for writing thanks to Griff Singer. And then I fell into the radio stuff, you know, after that. So I'm like, wow, I I mean, I would have never thought about that if it hadn't been for Griff Singer as well. So those two gentlemen, when I was a student, I refer to all the time in my own lectures. And I I tell, you know, my own students, I said, you got to figure out a way to carve your own niche. And you got to figure out your own way to grab somebody by the shirt, you know, collar, pull them to you get their attention. And then when you're done delivering your message, you politely let them go and say, I hope to see you again. And if you make that kind of an impression on them, they'll be back. They will come back. They will find you through the sea of, you know, millions of channels and millions of websites. They will find you if you leave them with a positive feeling. And it may not necessarily be, uh, you know, an entertaining one. It may be because they, you're a dope. I hate you. But guess what? I still have to read you. I still have to listen to you because, you know, uh, listening to you is like, you know, waiting for a train to wreck, you know, and, and some guys, some guys we know on the radio are like that, yeah. you know, they just, they will go right up your backside and it's kind of like, Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. But it's almost like, you know, you almost have to look away from it. And then you're like, like a bug to a light, baby. I keep coming back to that one, but it's just like that. You got to like, Oh, where's the light? Where's the light? It gets you, you know? And so, 
That's what I'm telling people that is important. It doesn't matter. Like doesn't matter. They only have to read you, listen to you, watch you. And like is just secondary. If they like you, it's a bonus. But as long as they're clicking on you and they're tuning you on and holding on to you for a while and you're holding on to them, that's what makes you successful. And and that's that's what we teach here. And we give our kids a chance to do that. We've got our own campus radio station here, and we let our freshmen come in and get started from the first year. They don't have to wait to be an upperclassman. If they show uh, a desire and a, a proclivity for you know uh, being entertaining and, and being um, uh, informative, we let them go as, as, as freshmen from the get-go here. Oh, and you never know when you'll get an email from the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> right? You just don't know who's <laughs> listening. And that's the beauty of the Internet right now. You just, you just don't know. And so I'm kind of like, oh, better be careful what you say, right? You don't want to piss anybody off. But, but at the same time, uh, it's just it's, it's glorious. It really is. I've, I've had more of a career than I ever even imagined possible, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And so, you know, uh, I remember the, the old girlfriend that said, well, you know, uh, you want to be like Bob Costas. And, and then I never really kind of got to that level, even though I've been fortunate enough to, you know, work for networks in my past. But I, I long ago decided I didn't want to be Bob. I really wanted to be more of a storyteller than a conduit between stories like he has been. And frankly, he's really good at it. There's nobody smoother on the planet. I don't mean that to denigrate him. I'm very much a fan. But I wanted to get into nitty-gritty details, and I wanted to figure out a way how to relate that you know, to, to, to a fandom, to, to a base of people who basically are begging you to tell them what's going on. And that's why I became – by my definition, an electronic beat writer. And so that's what we do as radio voices. We're electronic beat writers. We're, we follow the team. We travel with the team. We know the guys. We know the coaches. So how do we relay these stories without giving away you know, trade secrets to the fans who are hanging on your every word? That's my challenge every time out. That's what I try to do. And I guess I've been lucky enough at it. But that's, that's what I found is, you know, kept me going and, and – um, what I try to teach my, my students. John, this has been, uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I, thanks for, for taking a random shot and sitting down and talking with me and, and, uh, and being a guest. This was great. Well, you're, Joel, you're very welcome. Uh, I think it's really cool, the podcast that you do. Uh, and I think it's hopefully a, a benefit to the industry because, you know, realizing that, you know, there has to be another generation of, you know, broadcasters coming along. And so I'm very much a proponent of, um, uh, old school uh, ideas, but new school ways to get there. Yeah. So I try to mix my old school beliefs with what I was taught with the new school ideas that are out there now that you have to integrate in order to be an effective communicator nowadays. And so I hope that we, you know, uh, to an extent, pass a little bit of that along. And I think this is a great conduit for that. And I'm glad you do what you do. Well said. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it.